I have so many tabs open right now. Yeah. I have um, all of my clothing shopping tabs open because it is cold outside. And Mm -hmm. I do not have adequate clothing and I will not spend yet another winter freezing my tits off in my own home. (laughs) They're nice tits and I worked hard to grow them, so I'm keeping them. I was literally about to say you worked hard for them. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's all of those tabs. Then there's the things I'm cooking up for D&D. I've got four tabs open from bestiary and spell things. I have my little homebrew uh, monster tab open. Oh, boy. Uh, A couple of other things. Yeah, it's going to be a fun one. I'm excited. And then I have how many tabs for the show? 20 if you count the one we're recording in. Jesus, why? Research. Okay. So I'm excited. I'm, there's a lot to say about this, these uh, chapters. Mm-hmm. I agree. I also took uh, quite a lot of notes. I only have one tab open. So, you know, I'm a little behind you there, but they were, they were dense. Yeah. I mean, most of the things are in my notes, so we'll, we'll see. I'm just occasionally navigating if I didn't want to type in all of the information into my notes. Mm -hmm. (sighs) How are you doing, bestie? Okay. Deep breath in (laughs) and out. One more in. And out. Hi, Sam. Hi, Ren. That was very soothing. You're welcome. Um, if only our our party had breathing techniques to help them get through the death of Gandalf. Yeah, I don't know if there's enough breathing techniques in the world for that. Another episode of The Fandom Apprentice, where I, Rin, a lifelong Tolkien fan, am taking my lovely best friend and co-host, Sam, through her very first journey in Lord of the Rings. I'm Sam. That's me. Yes, you are Sam. Sam, I am. And because we are going in chronological order... That means today we are on chapter six of book two of Fellowship, Lothlorien, and we'll read through Lothlorien and uh, the Mirror of Galadriel, chapter seven. Okay, so let me get that pronunciation one more time. Lothlorien, is that how you say it? Lothlorien, yes. Okay, cool. I was worried about that. Lorien, okay, cool. I will try to do that correctly. So at the time of recording this, we officially dropped our podcast yesterday. It's out in the world. Ah, yes. 
Yeah, we have been very warmly received, which we super, super appreciate. We've gotten all kinds of nice messages from people because it feels a little bit, I don't know, egotistical to try to promote your podcast to people that you know in real life to be, hey, you know how you hear me talk all the time? Would you like to hear me talk more on this hour of me talking? You know, it just seems like a bit of a, I don't know, self-centered thing to say. But I've tried to get over that. And everyone who's listened has said that they've had fun. So we are very, very grateful for all of our friends taking a chance on this silly thing. Yeah. My roommate was saying, you know, like they listened to our intro episode and they, you know, enjoyed it. They were like, yeah, listening to someone you live with talk on a podcast is only marginally less weird than hearing your own voice recorded. <laughs> It was like, we also fair. Yeah. And I don't remember if I've said this on the show or not, but I'm one of those freaks who actually likes the sound of my own voice. I recorded myself a lot in college when I was dictating essays and notes and brainstorming and stuff. So I'm very used to it. And I think that the things I have to say are smart and funny. So I listen back to them and go, oh, yeah, look, those that's a bunch of smart and funny stuff that I just said. You do have plenty of smart and funny things to say. Oh, thank you, Bestie. So do you. Oh, I just really wanted to give a special shout out to our one listener in Belgium who found the show (laughs) mere minutes after we posted the intro episode secretly. We hadn't even told any of our friends that we were doing it because we were just testing to make sure that all of our accounts on various platforms were approved and stuff. It was just purely a technological test. And then we saw in the analytics, oh, there's somebody in Belgium. Okay, that's definitely a bot, whatever. But then they kept downloading episodes. So I think you're a real person. Hello. It is so wonderful to have you with us, whether whether you're in Belgium or anywhere else. But it was just like, damn, you were in on the ground floor, an innovator. Yeah, I hope, you know, by this point, by episode nine, you are still listening to us. Um And if you are, shoot us a message on our social media. We would love to say hello. Yeah, that would be awesome. That would be really surreal, but Really strange. If you didn't stop listening in like episode two when I insulted the French language. I also insulted the French language and I was listening to that episode thinking about it and being like, oh man, (laughs) if we didn't alienate our Belgian friend. But that was a very niche targeted message to what we are trying to be a broadly appealing podcast. (laughs) so besides the launch of the podcast do we have any other announcements or anything Hmm, none that i can think of um we were talking in one of our many group chats with some friends about the show and i made a comment about aragorn and then one of our friends went i think that's the horniest thing i've ever heard you say (laughs) And I realized this is a side of my personality that they have not been exposed to. So, hello. Everyone contains multitudes. I'll contain multitudes of Aragorn. Um. (laughs) I'm envisioning now a room with multitudes of Aragorns who are just kind of down for whatever. Yeah. No, that works for me. (laughs) Um. I'm going to take it on a real downer note because I do want to go back actually to Moria real quick before we jump into this. 
Um, cause I don't think last time we talked about, and if I did, we can, we can totally cut this. I don't think last time I talked about the catabasis and Tolkien's tendency to write these catabases. All I can so, think of is catabussy because we've talked about that before. <laughs> this really serious literary thing is just kind of ruined for me forever. <laughs> Please continue and say your smart thing. I just had to say it out loud. Otherwise, it was just going to be on the tip of my tongue, just waiting. So that's now out of the way. And I'm ready to fully give you my attention about the catabasis because you are so right. The catabussy was on the tip of your tongue? <laughs> Mm. I'm realizing now how that sounds. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Catabasis anyway, is, mm-hmm. for our listeners who might not be familiar, a concept in primarily um, Greek and classical mythology in which the protagonist ends up um, making a journey to the underworld, usually for information. Um, there's often a crossover with uh, the Nakia, which is a conversation with the dead who usually know more about something that you want to understand. So Tolkien has written a few of these. He, He very much uses underground as like an underworld metaphor throughout his, his books and underworld in the sense of, like the afterlife, Hades. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Moria specifically, there's there's a line in Peter Jackson's fellowship where Gimli looks around and goes, this is no mine, this is a tomb. They, they have descended into a city of the dead, a necropolis. And Tolkien's been really queer, really queer, <laughs> really clear about the fact that like the underground... And specifically, these tombs contain inherent evil um, earlier in the book with like the Barrow Downs, the Barrow Whites. And so for the party to descend into death to continue their quest, it makes total sense that one of them didn't come out. You had to make a sacrifice to escape from that. Mm -hmm. Somebody had to remain in death so that the rest of the party could return to the living. And it also just reminds us of how high these stakes are, because if Gandalf can get got by the Balrog, literally anything could happen to anyone. Yeah. But leaving Moria behind and moving on. Chapter six, Lothlorien. Um, I love that Aragorn's final salute to Gandalf is also an I told you so. Yes, he literally says, did I not say to you, if you pass the doors of Moria, beware, alas that I spoke true, what hope have we without you? And now I feel really justified in making such a big deal about that line last time, because Aragorn brings it up himself. Yeah, um, but then he goes, we must do without hope, at least we may yet be avenged, right? The forget Mm -hmm. hope we have spite line. I love that. I think every queer person who grew up in a small to mid-sized conservative town can agree with that one. Mm-hmm. That also made me think of that one episode of Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, I think it's The Serpent's Pass, where they have to give up on hope. And then the lady has the baby, and they name the baby Hope, and it's a whole thing. It's very beautiful and emotional. Um, that also 
reminded me of that. Just like sometimes hope is not a helpful concept and you just have to keep on going regardless. Someone has that, there was that Tumblr post I saw again today about like hope is a, is a skill that you hone. Um, and mm-hmm. someone made it like a Dr. Seuss type poem. I love that. I doubt, you know, let's see. Hope is a weapon. Hope is a skill. Hope is a plant you can care for or kill. Hope is a discipline, something you choose. Hard to stop looking for. Easy to lose. Hope isn't something to have or to take. If you can't find it, it's something you make. Make it from willpower. Make it from spite. Learn how to weaponize love in a fight. Hope is a shield and a thing to defend. End in itself and a means to an end. It's really good. <laughs> I love that. Do you? Can you see who made it? So folks, can I'm go trying to find seek it out and credit. Get tattoos of it if you're a script tattoo kind of person. I'm trying to find a. Uh... I think it's Tenacious Writing Dragon. Awesome. Um, on Tumblr, but I'm not. Nope. My bad. It's not Tenacious Writing Dragon. Mumble Splash. Mumble Splash. Hell yeah. On Tumblr. So, very cool. Excellent piece of poetry. Probably not the only piece of poetry we'll be talking about on this episode. Anyway, Mirror Mirror is so much fun to say. (laughs) Mirror, 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 mirror. Before we get to mirror, mirror, I did just have one more little uh, note, which is that they're all still very much mourning Gandalf. And like we said, Mm -hmm. they just have to move on. And this continues to come up in the next chapter and presumably continuing on after that. And I thankfully have been lucky to not have a lot of firsthand experience with grief, but I do know that it's not something that just goes away, even if you're on a very important adventure. And so to have them continue to deal with the emotional fallout of that, I really liked. I thought that was really good. Yeah. They're just kind of putting all of their feelings in a nice little mason jar and tucking it aside for now. Um, They'll deal with it later. Which, you know, not necessarily a strategy that we recommend, but this is, these are exceptional circumstances. They're trying to destroy the fucking ring. I think they can save the healthy emotional coping mechanisms for later. They're trying to get far enough away from the mountain that the orcs can't get them in the night. Yeah. (laughs) Priorities. So they come upon Durin's stone. Yeah. And specifically, Um, um, Gimli sees it and... I like that these are really Gimli forward chapters, specifically this one. Um, and he basically insists that the party take a break so he can go see it. And also insists that Frodo come along with him. And apparently Durin Stone is the place where Durin first looked into the mirror mirror, which like you said, it's very fun to say. Um, but yeah, we haven't really gotten a lot of Gimli's personality. So I'm just excited to have some time to get to know him and what's important to him. And I thought that was really fun. Yeah, I I also really love that we we start getting more of Gimli. We start getting more of Legolas as well in this chapter. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, they kind of go hand in hand, especially now that I know that people ship them, which I shouldn't be and- surprised by because I've been on the internet a long time, but... Yeah, they're I was I was gonna say they are definitely going hand in hand. <laughs> <laughs> but Frodo goes along with Gimli up to 
or down to um, Durinstone, and so does Sam. Even though he's mm-hmm. like not expressly invited, it just says Sam followed behind, right? And on the one hand, I guess it's I get that it's like Sam is a servant, um, and so he's almost he's you know, he's part of the party, but he's still kind of beneath notice. He just tags along, right? He's kind of considered to be like a part of Frodo. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if we want to modernize that and make that okay, I feel like it's when you invite a friend with like the understanding that their partner is also going to come along to something, mm-hmm. you know, and as relationship anarchists, we tend to not have that assumption a lot in our, in our friendships. It's like, if I'm going to hang out with you, I'm going to hang out with you and not necessarily your partner, although your partner's welcome. Yeah. You know, if we see, you know, whoever's partner, it'll usually be a very welcome surprise but there's also the understanding that we are all our own individual people and sometimes just a couple of those individual people want to spend time together and that's fine but I like that reading of it because that makes it a little less sad because I didn't even notice Sam the first time because there's literally one teeny weeny sentence that you know Frodo followed slowly drawn by the still blue water in spite of hurt and weariness Sam came up behind Sam came up behind is all we get. And, and I'm the only guilty thing of... we get yeah, at the mm-hmm. end of the paragraph is Pippin asking Sam what he saw, but Sam was too deep in thought to answer. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the only indication that we have that Sam tags along. Yeah. And that he has his own experience. And he has another sort of parallel gazing into water experience in the next chapter. And now I'm enjoying thinking about those two things side by side. Yeah. Into mirrored water specifically. Um, mm-hmm. And Durin's stone, like you said, it's the first place that Durin looked into the mirror mirror, into Keladzaram, Um, And he saw the seven stars arrayed as if a crown around his head and knew he would be king. Durin's crown is a constellation of seven stars, not unlike the D&D 5e spell crown of stars. Oh, uh, interesting. Seven stars for the Dwarf King, seven rings for the Dwarf Lords. Ooh. Anyway, that's just something I thought about. As we go on, do you feel, I I felt like the characters here have gotten more like poetic or archaic with their language this chapter. I feel like they're being much more stilted and formal with each other. You know, I didn't notice that when I was first reading, but now that you pointed out, looking back, I think I can see it. You know, I feel like on the one hand, grief can do that when you don't know your companions well and you don't know how to comfort them and everyone's sort of drawing into themselves and trying not to step on any toes. But I also was thinking um, that you could explain this with, A, the effect is uh, of them basically being about to enter the Feywild is that they're all becoming more prosaic or B, when Gandalf died, his dramatic life force was sprinkled among the party. (laughs) (laughs) It's just residual magical drama. I mean, as I've stated, I don't believe that Gandalf is dead forever. So not really sure about the law of conservation of Gandalf that's happening there. But (laughs) I do... I do think that part of it is maybe related to the experiences that they're having because... In these two chapters, 
they're just kind of going to a lot of really beautiful and deeply significant places. And there's not a lot of action fighting that happens. They're mostly just having really intense reflection in the literal reflections, but also just, you know, even going to fucking Durin's stone, I was thinking about, you know, what does this say about Gimli? What do we know about Gimli? What does he value? Because I'm curious about him. And, you know, like I said, we haven't gotten that much about him. And he obviously is really into dwarvish history and being a part mm-hmm. of it and being a contributor to that legacy. So for him to have this experience of standing where Durin stood and, you know, being able to sort of, sort of losing my train of thought there, but being able to participate in his history and to see these things is really moving for him. It's a really significant experience. And there's more of that to come. And I think that that also is just sort of bringing out, like we've talked about a couple episodes back, this formal language, this significant, more ritualistic language to mark these special experiences that they're having. Yeah, I like that. But also just like imagine that you're out with your friends on a long through hike and then everyone starts suddenly speaking very formally and poetically. That would be a little bit weird. That would be disorienting. A little bit. I feel like when you're in the backwoods for a a significant amount of time, I have had like, you know, weird shit happens to you. You end up speaking you either come up with your own language amongst yourselves after about two or three days, or you all get very formal. Um, but mostly like as a joke Mm -hmm. and I've had both of those things happen. That is fascinating. I'll have to ask you about that off mic at some point. Also, like, as you're saying this, these are, you know, sort of big talking and reflecting chapters, which I guess is sort of why we're getting a lot more character growth. They're not, having they're not focused on the journey they're not focused on fleeing they're not focused on fighting but tolkien is still particular about time Mm -hmm. uh for now until we get into lorian right because he's got it, it was now nearly three hours after noon and they had only come a few miles from the gates and he's gonna be real fucking particular about like when day and night is and when they're stopping and how far they're going until he gets into Lorien, because time in the Fey realm has no fucking meaning. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But anyway, Aragorn notices that Frodo and Sam are hurt and Mm -hmm. begs his pardon um, that he forgot about that in in his grief. Yeah, and he's saying, you know, I wish you guys had said something. We were just continuing on, focusing on running away. But he genuinely feels bad because it's part of his responsibility as a leader to make sure that everyone's okay. But he does tend to them. And, you know, Frodo and Sam both have a good attitude. They're doing their best to keep up. And, oh. He uses dried athalas to care for them. Yes. Specifically. Um, And I think... Athalas is the fucking Vicks Vaporub of Middle Earth. <laughs> it's a very convenient thing to have because otherwise mm. you will be too bogged down with all of the minor to moderate bumps and scrapes that you get while traveling. 
and then they'll just be in no shape to keep fighting. So it, from a world building perspective, it makes a lot of sense. That's the that's the hit dice that they're rolling on their short rests. Yeah, the the little lesser healing potions. Yeah. And Frodo specifically is really reluctant to have his clothes touched because now that he's learned about Mithril and what a big deal it is, he's not really eager for everyone to see his super expensive mail that he has on, but there's no avoiding it. Everyone finds out and they're all very excited. And I wrote down a line, look, my friends, Aragorn called, here's a pretty hobbit skin to wrap an elven princeling in. If it were known that hobbits had such hides, all the hunters of Middle-earth would be riding to the Shire. And that is fucking hilarious. That's a great line. I love the, you know, attempt to bring a little levity to all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, But also thinking about, you know, Frodo being really reluctant for folks, for people to touch his clothes and to touch his chest. Um, Very, very trans moment there. Mm, Yes. Frodo, Frodo doesn't want people to see his binder. I love that. Anyway, Frodo assigned trans at the Phantom Apprentice. I love it. I mean, like, I have seen the prices of some binders. Some of them might as well be made out of mithril. So, you know, it works on many levels. But anyway, as they, as they go on, Gimli's hanging in the back with Frodo. Um, they have some bonding time. Yeah, they have their very D&D two characters taking a night watch together kind of moment, which watches are always fun, especially if you have a couple of party members who don't normally interact in the day to day. And then you force them into a situation where it's just them with kind of nothing happening and you sort of wait to see what they talk about. I feel like we could very much have this book as a D&D game as a D&D campaign, right? Where each chapter individually is a session of the campaign. I feel like it translates super well. And yeah. you know, obviously part of that is the the episodic storytelling nature that that Tolkien I think kind of is used to from you know both the types of stories that he grew up with and also writing the Hobbit as episodic storytelling that he told his sons around the fire at mm-hmm. night as bedtime stories and the fact that D&D is you know started out as just Lord of the Rings in a different hat yeah and their conversation isn't super substantive but we do get a teeny little bit more of Gimli lore because he's saying that there's nothing happening it's quiet or his ears are made of wood, which, again, funny line, good comic relief. But then after that, we have Gimli halted and stooped to the ground. I hear nothing but the night speech of plant and stone, he said. Come, let us hurry. The others are out of sight. And I think we had talked about before the stones in Moria or around Moria, whatever the name of the mountain was, mourning the absence of the elves. And it seems like listening to the plants and stones is a real ability that Gimli has and if so that's really cool why was he stooping to the ground to listen Sam what was he listening for orcs question mark I don't remember if there was something else specifically orcs but Frodo keeps hearing sounds in the night that aren't orcs and keeps Mm. seeing something he saw it in Moria too with creepy glowing eyes oh no thank you this will get mentioned multiple times throughout the chapter Yeah, I think 
I didn't notice it until a little bit later on. I hadn't noticed it at this point in my notes. But yeah, there's something something out there. I kind of, I'm going to place my bets that it's Gollum because he's sort of on the loose right now. But I don't know. I'm not I'm not 100% committed to that. I don't have evidence for that. It would be really weird if he had made it this far. But there's something creeping and crawling and we don't like it. Capital P Sammy prediction. They're being followed by Gollum. It could be. I am not as confident in this one as I am with the magic of friendship theory, but I'll put it out there. Sounds good. But they keep going. Legolas is thrilled to be in Lothlorien. Yes. And um, Aragorn, too. They're both super excited. Uh, apparently has special and powers. not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, he, he's He alone is wary of the Feywild, right? He says, by strange paths, this company, it has this company been led. And so far to evil fortune. Against my will, we passed under the shades of Moria to our loss. And now we must enter the golden wood, you say. But of that perilous land, we have heard in Gondor. And it is said that few come out who once go in. And of that few, none have escaped unscathed. And then Aragorn basically says, just because you heard stories about it doesn't mean it's true. Stop being a whiny bitch. We're going into Lothlorien. It's great. I love it there. And, But more specifically, he goes like, you know, unscathed sort of implies damage. They're not damaged, but they are changed. And if you were to say that they were changed, you'd, you'd be speaking the truth. But anyway, come on, let's go. Yeah. Um, which I think tells us a couple of things about Boromir. Okay, let's dig into that. Which is Boromir is, you know, a little more conservative. He is more of the, you know, he grew up as a prince. He grew up, you know, with this constant generations long war against the forces of Mordor. And drilled into his blood. And so... To him, you know, he's got tradition and honor uh, baked into his bones. And so to him, this idea of change and the unknown is bad. Yeah. Right? And Aragorn is a wanderer who was raised alongside the elves and who experiences change as his day-to-day. Boromir and Aragorn are mirrors of each other, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's kind of interesting to see them as, as the two humans in the party um, facing off against each other. Yeah. And we had talked about Boromir's sort of princely entitlement last time. And now that I'm on the lookout for it, I'm definitely seeing it. And that he's really frustrated that nobody seems to be taking him seriously, which... I know we're kind of giving him a hard time, but that does make sense. If I was him and I had been chosen to represent my people, I would be pretty annoyed that my party didn't seem to be listening to my recommendations. So he's ultimately being a pretty good sport. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had a, I had another thought, but it's, oh, it was, I feel like Aragorn's comment about change is going to sort of be the start of a lot of this 
line of thought that I, I have going through these two chapters where we talk about Lorien and the elves of Lorien not as, you know, fitting in nicely into Tolkien's good and evil. Like they're clearly meant to be good and absolutely good. But also they are the most fae that we've seen so far. They're the most fairy-like creatures that we've mm. seen so far, particularly Galadriel, who we'll get to and talk about in more depth in so a little bit. I'm so excited to talk about Galadriel. I love her. She's so cool. Which means I feel like they are, we're less able to understand them. We're not, we can't come at them from this black and white perspective. We have to come at them from like the, the perspective that their, their needs and wants and desires are kind of inscrutable to us. Yeah, and I feel like today is just a day of connecting a lot of themes that we've brought up previously. So I'm just going to keep doing that. But we've talked about with the old forest, how it's not necessarily evil when trees are trying to eat you or when bad stuff is happening to you. It's just the forest being itself. And so I think this is kind of similar, but, you know, opposite that they're good. Good doesn't always mean nice to you specifically they are just kind of doing their thing operating on their own rules and they do ultimately help the party but they're gonna do it in their way right aragorn describes it as fair and perilous mm -hmm. right i love this description because things of beauty can still harm if not handled with care mm -hmm. right there are many things that i have done in a chemistry lab or that I would describe as beautiful, right? But if you touched it with your bare hands, it would burn you. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, I would describe fire as beautiful, but fire can also destroy in addition to heat and cook and protect and provide light, right? It's not evil because it is capable of destruction, right? A predator isn't evil because it, it pursues its prey. It just is. And that just activates my little Buddhist studies, Buddhist ethics brain about the interconnected web of suffering <laughs> and how all beings will inevitably harm one another. And very traditional Buddhist thought does have a pretty strict good and evil sin merit binary. So there are definitely a lot of Buddhists who would not agree with this. Um, but I think there are also plenty who would that part of the journey to enlightenment, part of increasing and activating your own compassion, even compassion towards yourself is understanding that you are capable of hurting people. Other people are capable of hurting you. All beings are just trying to do the best they can to get by. And if you can stop attributing good and evil meaning to that, which is very, very difficult to do, because I think there are a lot of people who are undeniably doing evil things and a lot of people who are undeniably doing good things. It takes some pretty advanced psychological, ethical reckoning to get there. But it is a really interesting perspective to have on the world and I think about that a lot yeah. 
So when the elves go to the Grey Havens to go fade into the West, are they escaping Samsara? Mm, they might be. I don't know if they're... Mm, that's... See, I don't know what's in the West, though. I don't know what's in the Great Havens because it might be more along the lines of being reincarnated as a god. And you can't achieve enlightenment if you're a god because your life is too cushy and easy. But we'll, we'll get there. Speaking of crossing bodies of water, though, because there is another one, Speaking unless you have more to say on this. crossing bodies of water, they cross the Nimrodel. Yes. Um, and it is beautiful and magical and healing and great. And they cross it super easily which is completely unlike the water in Mirkwood in The Hobbit, which it immediately made me think of because in that one, the whole thing was don't touch the water, don't drink the water, avoid contact with the water is bad news. Whereas here we just have this beautiful, lovely stream and Legolas is super eager to tell everyone lots of lore about it and the lady that it's named after. Well, um, I also, I also was thinking about, as they're talking about it, washing away your pain and your hurt. Um, in the Aeneid, Virgil talks about reincarnating through the River Leith. I'm Leithy, my pronunciation. I'm not sure which, what's the correct pronunciation. But in that, he describes drinking from the River Lethe, uh, which is the river of forgetfulness, and it washes away all of your memories of your previous life. So you can be reincarnated. Mm -hmm. Rick Reardon, in his various collected works, describes uh, swimming through the river Leith and that washing away your memories. And so I was thinking about the Leith. I was thinking about the stick, the river sticks, um, and getting dunked in and sort of, you know, it the, the sticks burning away parts of your mortality, mm -hmm. as uh, as happened to Achilles right? Um, so he became invulnerable except for his heel. And also thinking about Christian baptism and washing away sins. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, thought, I, I was thinking about all of that imagery as they're washing away their pain and their hurt in this water. But we get, we get a lot of lore, right? We get talking about Nimrodel, like you said. And then Legolas stops and goes, you know, and that was all before the dwarves fucked up and awakened the evil in the mountains. Yeah. And that's where I wrote in my notes in all caps, dwarf drama, presidential alert, the girls are fighting. And we're finally getting some reasons for the elf dwarf beef. Um, it's not... I don't think it's information that we didn't already have, but it's connecting it in ways that make sense. And um, specifically, so Legolas sings this whole long song and then I read it and went, wow, that's sad. And then Legolas says, it is long and sad. And the full version of that quote, he says, it is long and sad for it tells how sorrow came upon, tell me how it's pronounced again. Lothlorien. Lothlorien. Lorien of the Blossom, when dwarves awakened evil in the mountains. But the dwarves did not make the evil, said Gimli. I said not so, yet evil came. And, you know, evil came, so the elves still blame the dwarves for bringing the evil. Oh, absolutely. And the dwarves, yeah. the dwarves are upset that they're being blamed for something that they did not do. 
mm-hmm. for something that, you know, yeah, the evil happened on their watch. But ultimately, the evil's not really their fault. The evil was there. Yeah, if an evil had been awakened in the forests and come down into the mines, you know, it's nobody's fault. They didn't create it. And if the dwarves didn't awaken it, who would have? Would it have just slumbered? As, um, you know, if you were aware that there was an evil in the dark, in the deep, you know, the dwarves weren't aware that the evil was there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they they go to sleep and they're, they plan to go to sleep up in the trees. Yes. And Pippin's the- like, I'm not fucking doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and Legolas just goes, then dig a hole in the ground. <laughs> but dig it really fast in case the orcs come. Uh, good luck, buddy. Um, and then he starts to climb the tree and suddenly uh, somebody says, Daro, which is the sender in command for stop or halt. Mm-hmm. And they have a little star here on Legolas looked up and answered in the same language. Right. And then later on, they talk about how it's not the same as the Elvish of the West. Mm-hmm. They're all speaking Sindarin. Right. There are multiple Elvish languages and the elves east of the Misty Mountains. I just hit my microphone. Hopefully that's not a problem. The elves east of the Misty Mountains and the elves west of the Misty Mountains are two different types of elves. Right. You've got the Eldar, the high elves, and then you have the the Sylvan elves, the wood elves. But they are all speaking Sindarin. And so the Sindarin dialect that the Sylvan elves speak is different enough that it's difficult for speakers of the Eldar dialect to understand. Mm-hmm. But they are all speaking Sindarin. Okay. Anyway, that was I went I went through the appendix appendix. F I appreciate that. that. I saw that. I saw in the um, footnote that it said C on elves or concerning elves, and I thought, okay, that's cool. I'm not going to remember to go back to that. They say you breathe so loud, they can shoot you in the dark. Yes, which, A, magic makes you dramatic, because magical beings, just being sassy for no reason. Um, But they also, so these other elves who just kind of appear in the woods, they had been watching the company this entire time. And much like a cougar, the only reason that the company can see them is because they have decided they want to be seen. And I thought this was just a good opportunity for me to mention that I find cougars very terrifying and I would not to be anywhere near where they are. And they are giving that same energy. So I am the right amount of afraid of these people. They're fine. They don't end up hurting the party, but I have a healthy respect for them. So you are discussing cougars. Um in a way that you and I talk about them. Uh, and we are not talking about older women who pursue younger, younger conquests. Um, <laughs> although no, we mean the literal mountain lions. Us, yes. Uh, we were discussing specifically a story that I have from when I was in Yellowstone years ago, um, in which we were talking about, or when, in which I was talking to a ranger and the ranger said, you know, like, you'll see wolves, you'll see bears, and you want to stay away from them and get away from all of them. But if you see a cougar, it's too late. They wanted to be seen. They want you to know they're there. Mm -hmm. You know, bears, you play dead. Cougars, you fight to the death. Yeah. Don't turn your back on one. Don't run away. 
if you ever see any of those trail cam pictures that are like find the cougar in this image it will take you a very very long time to find the cougar in that image and it'll be way closer than you thought it was and they're (laughs) upsetting so these elves possess that same spirit of sneakiness yeah um we are pro cougars in terms of older women for the record Yes, very much so. If any of those cougars <laughs> want to come find us, they're welcome to. Uh, <laughs> DM us. We'll help you out. Anyway. <laughs> but we meet three elves, uh, Haldir, Rumil, and Orofin, who don't leave the forest much, clearly. Yeah. Because they they're... mention we did not know that halflings dwelt yet in Middle-earth. Mm-hmm. Halflings first came to Eriador, which is the area west of the Misty Mountains where the Shire is, 2,000 years previously. Damn. Um, And then they mentioned that there's been no dwarves in Lorien since the Dark Days, which is 3,000 years ago when, or over 3,000 years ago when Sauron, when, excuse me, when Sauron was around the last Sauron, uwu. Sauron, uwu. He's a small bean. It's a small little eyeball. I hate that. Thank you. For, he just wants um... his wing. <laughs> I well, now that uh, my brain is chibiifying the eye of Sauron. <laughs> um, oh, we'll talk about the eye later. So that's just fucked up. <laughs> they, you know, they go up and they go to sleep in the flats. So, super quick before that. So, the elves are talking about, you know, not knowing that the halflings were still around. Yes, they are. And specifically, they knew to look out for the company because Elrond's messengers kind of tipped them off. They said that they heard rumors, so they weren't 100% sure they might be coming through. And they're offering hospitality very reluctantly. They're pretty suspicious of everyone, even Legolas, who is another elf, but he's from the north, so he's different. But Aragorn, they go, oh, yeah, we know we know Aragorn, son of Arathorn. He's cool. He has the favor of the lady. And that just must be so infuriating if you're Legolas to go, these are my people. This is this land that I was so excited to come to. It's so great here. And then they're just kind of giving him the cold shoulder. They go, Aragorn, buddy. That was so fucking funny to me. Well, they also mentioned later, I think it's in the next chapter, that Aragorn hasn't been there in 38 years. Mm-hmm. And they um, all still remember him. And they all still, well, I mean, because they're fucking immortal and yeah. he's in his he's in his 80s. So, mm-hmm. um, and he's going to live to be over 200. Yeah. And uh, they are not happy when Legolas drops that they have a dwarf with them. Um, which he saves for last when he's telling them how many people are coming through. Cause he's saying, you know, we have this couple of hobbits and the two men and me and you know, that's the people in our company. And then the elves go, but you said there were nine of you, right? You just listed eight. And then Legolas goes, yeah, so the last one is a dwarf. And the elves basically allow him on the condition that Legolas and Aragorn babysit Gimli and that he's blindfolded when they walk through the woods. So not a great deal for our buddy Gimli. 
Yeah, and I'll talk about the blindfold thing when we actually get to the part where they blindfold them because I have oh yes, a tangent for that. Yes, but this decision is made without Gimli there. This is all yes. before they're allowed to sleep in the awesome treehouse. Yes, which is really just a platform in the tree. It's a hunting platform. There's there's no sides. There's a windscreen on one side. Mm-hmm. And so the hobbits have a hard time falling asleep, except Sam, who just conks the fuck out. And I love that Sam has lovely special sleep abilities because there's been a couple of other times where he has just conked the fuck out. Mm-hmm. And also where he's like resisted the like sleepifying magics before. Mm-hmm. So I love that Sam um, just has that ability. He sleeps when he wants to, when he's ready. And and speaking, nobody else can tell him to do so. Yeah. <laughs> There's one area of his life he has control over. He deserves that. Yeah. And speaking of sleeping and the sleeping arrangements, we get a little moment with poor Mary dragging everyone's blankets up onto the platform only to find out that the elves had a ton of blankets for everyone up there already. And I'm I'm sorry, buddy. You didn't have to do all that. But he tried and we got to give him an A for effort. Also, we haven't really seen really much from Mary at all just by himself. So I also appreciated just even if it was a tiny snippet of Mary doing something. Yeah. Right now we're we're heavy on the ensemble cast. And so it's a little difficult to make sure everyone gets a piece of the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get more of all of these characters, especially as we go into the two towers. Mm-hmm. But during the night, orcs pass below. And, and something also, else. Something else. Mm, no, Haldir has never seen it before. It was not an orc. I would have thought it was one of you hobbits, he says, except it could climb. And Frodo sees the glowing eyes and then it flees. So that really supports my golem theory that it can climb and it's kind of hobbit-sized. But I don't remember if his eyes glow. Um, does ring corruption give you tapetum lucidum? <laughs> Maybe. But anyway, in the morning, they are, uh, Orofin runs off to tell the other elves that there are orcs and to, you know, they, they make it clear. None of the orcs are leaving this forest alive, mm-hmm. which that was fun. Yeah. That's, that's pretty hardcore. Um, but then they all kind of gather up to go head deeper into the forest. Um, and there's a point where they leave, they leave Nimrodel behind and, Frodo reflects on it and says, it seemed to him that he would never hear again a running water so beautiful, forever blending its innumerable notes into an endless, changeful music. And this just goes back to him being like, would I ever see my little hobbit hole again? Will I ever see the Shire again? And realizing he doesn't expect to come back from this adventure. Hmm. He is going with the full intent of dying in the process, but he is still going because it has to be done. He's so good. That's so brave. It hadn't occurred to me to think about it that way, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. He's not, he does not plan to come back. They cross the river with a very ingenious little rope uh, plan. Um, 
And Sam says that even his uncle Andy never did anything so wild. And Mm -hmm. I want to know, like, clearly from that sentence, we learned that Uncle Andy was a pure mad lad. He got up to (laughs) some shit. He was scandalous throughout the Shire. But I want to know how, like, absolutely boring you have to be to be scandalous as fuck in the Shire. (laughs) And never have bothered crossing a river with a bit of rope. Yeah. And that, you know, of all of the things that they've done so far, this river crossing is the one that's going, oh, this is a bit much. Uncle Andy would have had conniptions. (laughs) He's just getting queerer and queerer. But they go to bind the eyes of Gimli. Mm -hmm. And I want to touch on a specific line here. We'll see if it's the same one that I wrote down. This is our law. I am not the master of the law and cannot set it aside. Right? What is legal is not always moral. Mm -hmm. And I want to back this up with a line from one of Tolkien's letters. Yes, please do. Your inquiry is doubtless made in order to comply with the laws of your own country but that this should be held to apply to the subjects of another state would be improper, even if it had, as it has not, any bearing whatsoever on the merits of my work or its sustainability for publication. So let's, I I have a whole tangent here before we get back to all of this. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about Tolkien, the Nazis, and the dwarves as explicit Jewish representation in in Tolkien's works. Let's do it. I thought I recognized that line and I was thinking, is that from the letter to the German publishers? And it was. Yeah. So um, in 1938, Tolkien was engaged with the Berlin publisher Rutten and Learning about creating a uh, German translation for The Hobbit. Right. And they asked for proof of Tolkien, uh, Tolkien's quote unquote Aryan descent. And Tolkien was fucking incensed about this. He was so mad about it. He sent a letter to his publisher with two drafts of possible responses, one of which did not address the request at all. And one of which uh, gave that line that I just read, uh, basically saying, that has no bearing on the quality of my work. And, but I want to read a couple of lines from his letter to his publisher, Stanley Unwin. Uh, Personally, I should be reclined to refuse uh, any of these requests and to let a German translation go hang. Uh, In any case, I should object strongly to any such declaration appearing in print. I do not regard the probable absence of all Jewish blood as necessarily honorable, and I have many Jewish friends and would regret, would regret giving any color to the notion that I subscribe to the wholly pernicious and unscientific race doctrine. Do I suffer this impertinence because of the possession of a German name, or do their lunatic laws require certification of Aryan origin from all persons of all countries? I love that. He also had a letter at one point in, to his son, uh, I have in this war a burning private grudge against that ruddy little ignoramus Adolf Hitler, ruining, perverting, misapplying, and making forever a curse that noble northern spirit a supreme contribution to Europe, which I have ever loved and tried to present in its true light. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he was a scholar of Anglo-Saxon literature. Um, he grew up with uh, the uh, Norse and Danish Eddas and sagas. Um, and he was of the opinion that everything the Nazis were putting out was bullshit. Yeah. Um, the The draft of the letter that he, whether or not he sent this is unclear. He goes, you know, I am not of Aryan extraction, that is to say, Indo-Iranian. As far as I'm aware, none of my ancestors spoke Hindustani, Persian, or any related dialects. Um, but if I am to understand that you are inquiring whether I am of Jewish origin, I can only reply that I regret to appear to have no ancestors of that gifted people. And this is not to say that Tolkien did not hold anti-Semitic views, because he was also a early 20th century English Catholic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the prevailing views of Jewish people at the time were largely anti-Semitic in general. Mm-hmm. And he does. And so, you know, I want to sort of, I wanted to bring all of that up because, you know, he thought that uh, the Nazis' views on, you know, on Judaism and on Jewish people were, you know, wholly horrific and unscientific to say the least, right? And then when we're talking about dwarves as uh, explicitly, as being explicitly Jewish, the dwarven language is explicitly uh, derived from Semitic languages. I didn't know that. Tolkien uh, used Hebrew phonolo- uh, phonology to build the Dwarvish language, Chuzdor. Mm-hmm. Um, and stated at one point, he says, the dwarves are quite obviously, wouldn't you say, that in many ways they remind you of Jewish people. Their words are Semitic, obviously constructed to be Semitic. And various Tolkien scholars um, have related parts of the dwarves to sort of various English and medieval depictions of Jewish people, right? Um, of the diaspora, specifically where their you know dwarves are have been sort of driven out from Moria and Erebor and are living in exile, right? The dwarven calendar. The new year is in late autumn, like Rosh Hashanah. Mm-hmm. And um, they have their Semitic language that they speak. Yeah. So, you know, and he clearly viewed them, you know, while he did draw a lot of inspiration from dwarves in uh, the, the poetic and the prose Edda, he also clearly drew a lot of inspiration from uh Jewish history as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this section is not an allegory. Tolkien has, there is another letter where Tolkien states, I despise allegory in all of its forms. Right? He, so this section is not, you know, an allegory for some Nazi officer uh, telling him he can't publish The Hobbit because, or, you know, Gimli can't enter because he's explicitly Jewish, right? But I think 
with all of that context, we'd be fools to not notice that. Yeah. That reminds me of a line of reasoning from another thing that you had sent me a while ago about Kurt Cobain that we do not have time to get into right now, but basically talking about how we, even if we can't say with 100% certainty that something is the case um, about a person and, you know, what sort of identities they're representing, we can't pretend not to notice, especially when we have all of this evidence from Tolkien that he's making these really explicit comparisons and he's drawing from explicitly Jewish sources in creating these characters. You know, we can't pretend that that's not there for better or for worse. Um, And yeah, it's definitely worth talking about, worth noticing. I would love, neither of us are Jewish for the record. I would love to hear Mm -hmm. from some Jewish listeners and readers about how they feel about the dwarves, if they have any feelings about the dwarves, because I think that there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Anyway, that was my, that was my tangent there, but I read, I read that line, um, the, this is our law. I am not the master of the law and cannot set it aside and immediately thought of that other line from his letter. Mm Mm-hmm. And so had to had to jump down that rabbit hole there. Yeah. And I like that in this moment where they're trying to blindfold him, Gimli doesn't take it lying down. He stands up for himself. He says, yeah. I will not walk blindfold like a beggar or a prisoner. And I am no spy. My folk have never had dealings with any of the servants of the enemy. Neither have we done harm to the elves. I am no more likely to betray you than Legolas or any of my other companions. And yeah, he should fucking stand up for himself. There's no reason that he should stand for being treated like that. And I understand that they're dependent on the elves' hospitality and they're in a perilous situation and shouldn't make things worse for themselves. But nobody, I don't think anybody in the party tells him he's wrong. And in fact, Aragorn comes up with an extremely diplomatic solution. I don't know if you have anything you want to talk about before that. No, not really. That was it. They just, they bind everyone's eyes. Yeah. Because Aragorn, again, just being a A plus leader, he realizes that they're not going to be able to, they're not going to be able to talk the elves out of this, but also it's unfair to single Gimli out. So if they're really intent on doing this, everybody's going to be blindfolded and mm-hmm. that ends up working. For, I mean, because you know, to Aragorn and to Gandalf and to Elrond, they are not, you know, they, the fellowship is the sum of its parts, right? They represent the free peoples of Middle-earth, but they are one. They are a whole. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that may change in the chapter that is upcoming uh, titled The Breaking of the Fellowship. Oh, no, I hadn't noticed that in the table of contents. Oh no. Sorry, bestie. Um, anyway. Anyway. But for the time being, they are, they exist in fellowship, you know, in addition to being referred to as such. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they lead them through the center uh, of, or lead them through to the center of Lorien and talk about the gorgeous things they're coming upon and the gorgeous, 
you know, sights they pass by and they, you know, they'll, they unbind their eyes to see the, the great city that lies in the center. Um, specifically, um, specifically they unbind their eyes because the lady who we don't know who the lady is yet. I mean, we know because we've read the chapters, but at this point she's just being referred to as the lady. She knows who they are and said, it's okay. Mm -hmm. And Haldir apologizes and says to Gimli, who gets his blindfold taken off first, as he deserves anything else would have been Mm -hmm. just gravely insulting. He says, look on us now with friendly eyes. Look and be glad, for you are the first dwarf to behold the trees of the Nyeth of Lorien since Durin's day. And even though the lead up to that moment was really shitty, like I was talking about with Durin Stone, that has to be a really special moment for Gimli to have this unique role and be able to claim, I'm the first person who has been able to, I'm the first dwarf who's been able to look upon this land since Durin was you know, up and ruling and stuff. That's, that was not a majestic way to say it, but that's a really significant moment for him. And I'm glad that he got to have that. Durin was up and ruling the dwarves. From... <laughs> Listen, that is, that's now how I will be describing any monarchy. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II was up and ruling England. For Listen, I'm, I'm trying to come up with thoughts as they occur to me it's my words aren't going to be perfect we're just going to keep moving on your words are great and i love them um thank you anyway they uh the nyeth or the gore of lorian a gore is in a quote a regular parcel of land according to wikipedia Um, and nyeth is a cinderin word that means angle because it is between the angle of the silver load and the anduin which are the two rivers that run through and past Lorien. Anyway, the, uh, oh, before they unbind their eyes, a great host of elves goes by to go hunt down the orcs. And they talk about that a strange creature has also been seen running with bent back and hands near the ground like a beast and yet not of beast shape. Oh, okay. Uh, it had vanished down the silver load southward. That's a little, somebody in the party has good passive perception overhearing the rumors in town. And that just continues with the the references that we've had to this, you know, thing following them, this creature following them, this, is it Gollum? Is it something else entirely? Is it fucked up? It, yes. That, that one's yes. Yeah. Things that are not fucked up is the Nyeth is beautiful. And there are so many quotes that I didn't even bother writing down because we wouldn't be able to convey them in their full majesty. But it's really impressive the way that it's described um yeah you'll just have to go read it um yeah go read it go find this chapter it's really really gorgeous if you just want to feel transported by a couple of paragraphs into a place that is way better than wherever any of us are but it has a really sense of district yeah um as i say it has a really strong effect on aragorn and i wrote down a quote Mm -hmm. about it but if you had a thing first you can do your thing first no, it's just Tolkien's Tolkien's sense of descriptive language. Um, you know, can get flowery at times, but here I think it it really does this justice. It it makes us, you know, really aware of how beautiful Lorien is and how alien it is to much of the party. Mm-hmm. Right, even to Legolas, who grew up in 
in Mirkwood, uh, you know, among other wood elves, this is something, you know, a step above, a step beyond. This is an ancient forest. Um, and I have to wonder if we went and found Tom Bombadil, uh, how at one point in life, you know, what was this, was, did his forest encompass this as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we'll talk about the possibility of this forest fading, maybe in the same way that Tom's has a little bit later on, but right now it is just eternally unchanging, beautiful and perfect. And it has a really strong effect on Aragorn. And the quote that I wrote down was, for the grim years were removed from the face of Aragorn, and he seemed clothed in white, a young lord, tall and fair. And he spoke words in the elvish tongue to one whom Frodo could not see. And then a little while after that, here is the heart of Elvendom on earth, he said, and here my heart dwells ever, unless there be a light beyond the dark roads that we still must tread, you and I. Come with me. And taking Frodo's hand in his, he left the hill of Saren Emroth? Question mark? And came there never again as a living man. Uh, what the fuck? That starts off really beautiful and nice. And oh, wow, he seems so much younger because it's this beautiful place that means so much to him. And then he's never going to come back as as a living man. Is his corpse going to be there? Is he going to be buried there? I don't know. And I don't want to know. But it really took a turn. And yeah, Rin is just giving um, me the most diabolical little smile. <laughs> I, I have other things before we get to the end of this chapter. Yes, yes. Um, which specifically, they're talking about the hill. They they mention it as the Mound of Amroth. Mm -hmm. And this activated the uh, uh, sleeper archaeology miner in my brain. Amazing. And went, Mound Builders! <laughs> <laughs> which uh, mound building cultures are found throughout the world. Um but we talk about them most often in the context of Native American cultures, pre-Columbian Native American cultures, um, in which sort of great earthwork mounds were built. And atop those mounds were built structures. Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes you know, we've talked about burial mounds before on this show. Um, and, you know, in some of the pre-Columbian mounds in North America, there were, uh, like intrusive burials and, in, uh, chamber graves, but many of them were really just sort of earthwork structures. They were sort of platform structures, uh, sort of flat top pyramidal structures. Um, there's also effigy mounds constructed in sort of like shapes or outlines. There's a serpent mound in Southwestern Ohio. Southwestern, southeastern, southern Ohio, somewhere, which is shaped like a serpent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's got a head and a big coiled tail. And so that, and then also the sense, so that made me think of, that's what the mound idea made me think of. And then I was thinking about a civilization growing around its ruins, right? Thinking about cities like Rome and Mexico City and um, London and, you know, all these places in which you can still see the evidence and Cairo, you know, the evidence of people being there for thousands of years before that. 
right? Mm-hmm. Where you can you can still see, you know, many of these thousands of year old earthwork mounds um, across sort of the southeastern U.S. You can see, you know, the pyramids uh, in in Egypt and the Colosseum in Rome and the Acropolis in Athens. Um, and so, you know, the elves live for centuries, millennia. We've discussed, uh, you know, Elrond being a warrior at the end of the last great war. Mm-hmm. Thousands of years before. Not to mention Glorfindel. Fuck, yeah. how did I forget his name? Not to mention Hercules. Hercules himself. <laughs> so, yeah, I... I just like the idea that like, you know, this was built back in the first age, long, long ago, perhaps during the time of trees, even many, many millennia ago. And yet it is still an important part of their culture, of their home. It's still maintained. It's still respected. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though, you know, this is not necessarily where Galadriel and uh, Celeborn hold court, it's still somewhere that they stop to look upon and to uh, experience, right? Yeah. Another thing, Sam talks about feeling like he was inside of a song, Mm -hmm. right? This is, I thought that elves were all for moon and stars, but this is more elvish than anything I ever heard tell of. Right. We talked before about magic and music being totally indistinguishable from each other. And I think that is what that line made me think of. Yeah, yeah. And the last thing I have for this chapter is Aragorn talking to someone he couldn't see, mm-hmm. like you said. And the words he that Frodo hears him say are Arwen van der Melde Namarie, I think is... My pronunciation is probably off on that. As we've discussed, I don't actually speak Sindarin. Well, nobody um, speaks Sindarin because it's made up. I know there are people who th- speak it. That's not what we're talking about. It's made up. Nobody speaks it. You're fine. <laughs> Arwen Vanamelda Namarie, which means Arwen, who we've discussed before, is the daughter of Elrond. Mm-hmm. Beautiful and beloved. Farewell. I'm like, may you be well. Um, so he is, you know, either talking to Arwen who is not there and cannot hear him or the other thought that I had was there's been messages from Rivendell. Galadriel knows she's had messages from Elrond and yeah, messengers have come forward. We know that, uh, before the party set out, there was a several month period where messengers went out and went over, uh, the Dimrald Dale. Um, over the Dimmel Stair. But also, we know that we learn next chapter that Galadriel can, like, see everything that's within her realm. Yeah. Um, and beyond. Magically, somehow. So, somehow. I kind of like the idea that almost Arwen could hear Aragorn. This was a I sending spell, that. telepathy, you know, magical telephone. Um just to tell his GF that he loves her. That's that's really yeah. sweet. Just to tell his, just to like, you know, 
when you call someone you love because you're standing somewhere and you're like, I have to tell you how pretty this place is. You know, like I'll send you a picture in a minute, but I have to tell you how incredible this is. I really love that. And we've talked about this chapter now for almost an hour and a half. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how much time we have for getting into the next one. Um, We could cut this off here if we wanted and do this next time. I think that might be the thing to do because I really don't want to rush these chapters. There's so much in them. And we're trying not to belabor these already very long books. You know, all if you put them together, they're very long. And so we're trying not to go chapter by chapter and sort of move at a good clip. But for these ones, I think we just have enough to talk about that we can take our time. Yeah. And we can, you know, maybe next time we'll cover the next two chapters and maybe we won't. Who knows? Yeah. And uh, are we just not going to address the never again as a living man part? Because I know you can't say anything about it, <laughs> but that's really going to haunt me, especially after talking about Aragorn being really sweet and thoughtful and romantic and he's going to die one day. <sighs> Don't like it. We did. I did just say he lives to be over 200. This is true. This is true. He makes just feel a little bit better. So he's got plenty of doesn't time. come. Yeah, he just doesn't come back to Lorien. Yeah. And we'll talk next time about the fading of the elves. Because at one at one point in this chapter, Haldir says that even if peace comes, the time of the elves is over, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter what the ending to this war is, this is the end of the elves eventually. Yeah, and Galadriel's gonna talk about that too a little bit. Right. So we'll we'll dig more into that next time, I think. Um, we'll dig into it. We'll is... awaken an ancient evil, you know. <laughs> we'll dig real deep and awaken the nameless fear. Uh, the nameless fear of being erased from history. Oof. We'll call it there. And next time we'll pick up with Fellowship Book 2, Chapter 7, The Mirror of Galadriel. Sorry to be uh, spending all of this time making references to what's in the next chapter and then not cover the next chapter and make you all wait for two weeks. But that does mean that you have to come back in two weeks to hear how the uh, this section ends. So if you've liked what you're hearing or you're intrigued about what we're going to say about Galadriel and everything to come here left in Lothlorien, you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If we are, if you are listening to this and we're not on your preferred podcast platform, if you're listening to this on a podcast platform that's your second or third choice, please reach out to us and let us know and we will try and get on your preferred podcast platform. If you would like to hang out with us in between episodes, you can find us on Instagram, X, and TikTok at FanAppPod. We're honestly mostly active on Instagram because I manage the social media and that's where I'm mostly active. And I appreciate that because social media frightens me so you are doing a great service to all of us by handling that yeah and you can always send us an email at the fandom apprentice at gmail.com 
we love hearing from our listeners. Um, you know, if you know us in real life, you can obviously uh, DM us. We've heard, you know, just in the day and change that the podcast has been out, so many wonderful things from folks who started to listen, which is really nice because we're really making this for us. Yeah. And we're we're so glad that like what we're talking about is entertaining for people. We're glad that what we talk about resonates with people. And we hope we can continue doing that and live up to people's expectations, I guess. But if you have comments, concerns, and or praise or anything <laughs> on that spectrum, we love to hear praise. Uh, but if you have comments or concerns as well, um, you can always reach out to us on social media or send us an email at thefandomapprentice at gmail.com. If you want to leave us a review uh, now that we're on the other side of the algorithms, and if you're a longtime listener of other podcasts, you always hear people say, leave us a five-star review. Now we understand that that actually makes a huge difference and helps push our stuff out to other people who might be interested. So if you can, if you feel so moved, we really appreciate it. Yeah. And word of mouth is the best way for a small podcast yes. like ours to yes. expand. So please uh, spread us to your friends, inflict us on your enemies, um, and subscribe. Keep on listening. And we will see you in two weeks to talk about the mirror of Galadriel. All right. So until then, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Hi, listeners. We just wanted to give a special thanks to Miles for being our sensitivity listener for our discussion of the dwarves as Jewish representation. We'll post future calls for sensitivity listeners on our socials, so keep an eye on at FanAppPod on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. The Phantom Apprentice is produced and edited by Rin and Sam. Our music was composed and performed by James, and our art is by Casey Turgeon. This podcast is created for non-commercial entertainment purposes, and the opinions expressed therein are our own and are not reflective of the opinions of any other person or organization. The content discussed is the property of the Tolkien estate and is used here under fair use.